Our next speaker is an adjunct lecturer in public policy, the founder of Echo Ditto and a co-founder of ProxyDemocracy.com and GeniusRocket.com, as well as one of Esquire Magazine's best and brightest. Please give a warm welcome to Nico Mele. I think the world changed in 1984. Good nerds in the room remember that was the year Steve Jobs introduced the first Macintosh personal computer, but that is not what I'm talking about. In 1984, a guy named Chuck Hall invented something called stereolithography. Today we call stereolithography 3D printing. I have a 3D printer. On a first warm spring day this past spring, I printed sandals for my boys. I have two little boys, five and three. The winter was long and torturous. I wanted them to run around outside in some sandals, but putting them in the car and driving in the mall seemed like a pain in the butt. So I downloaded blueprints off the internet, printed sandals overnight, and they were running around in them this, for the summer. Sounds awesome, right? That's like nerd fun. <laughs> About two days after I did that, a guy in Texas put up the blueprints to print all of the regulated pieces of an AR-15 assault rifle, the same model used at Sandy Hook. Also, all the blueprints to print a fully functional pistol. Buy some nice deck screws at your local hardware store. This story perfectly encapsulates the excitement, the opportunity, the promise of our technology, but also the ways it has unintended consequences, the ways it's outpacing our institution's ability to understand it, to manage it, to think about its implications. I am going to make the case to you tonight that our technology is pushing power out of institutions to individuals at an exciting and alarming rate in ways that are both exciting and terrifying. And this has broad implications for the institutions that have built the 20th century. Big news, big political parties, big government, big militaries, big fun. And it's not an accident that this has happened. If I was giving this speech 35 years ago here in Sanders Hall, terrifyingly easy to imagine that, I suppose, and I asked you to think of a computer, to describe a computer to me, you would have described something that might have filled, oh, hey, forgot that slide, filled most of the stage, right? A big a computer in 1970, this is a Cray supercomputer circa 1972, 1975, it was a giant thing. It cost five million bucks base price. It was only affordable to the world's biggest universities, the world's biggest governments, militaries, the world's biggest corporations. And today you can walk into a strip mall, eh, pretty much anywhere in the world, and buy a computer of much greater power for just a couple hundred bucks and a low monthly fee. That's a huge devolution of power out of institutions to individuals. One way to think about this is a great book by, uh, by uh, George Dyson called Turing's Cathedral. Turing's Cathedral is about how in order to build the nuclear bomb, they had to first build a computer to do the calculations. Just imagine for a moment if you could walk in any strip mall in the world and buy a nuclear bomb for 200 bucks and a low monthly fee. That's the kind of power we're carrying around with ourselves all the time on our persons. And we haven't really thought about what that means. And it's not an accident. The first computer science program in the United States, the first Department of Computer Science, 
was not at MIT, thank God. It was at Purdue University in 1962. So if you were really a nerd, if you were really into technology and computer science, and you wanted to major in, in, in computer science on college campuses in the, in the late 60s, early 70s, there was some other stuff going on. There was the civil rights movement, there was the anti-war movement. Most of the, of the digital pioneers who built our era lived through this. Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak met just days after the Kent State shooting, and it was top of mind for them. And there was a movement in computer science. You cannot trust institutions with computers. If we let authorities have computers, they will use it to hurt us, to take us down violent rabbit holes like Vietnam. And so there was this movement among nerds and computer scientists to claim the computer for the person, for the individual, to build the personal computer. And that's in part how we go from computers that fill rooms to computers that sit on desks, to computers that share printers in the old school H drive, to computers that are all connected to each other in the internet, and now we walk around with them on our person all the time. We take them into the bathroom with us. It's the first thing we do at night, the, last, the, the, the first thing we do in the morning, the last thing we do at night. This has profound implications for power in exciting and terrifying ways. And I'm just gonna give you one example tonight I'm an inherently political person, love politics. Let's talk for a moment about Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama, 2008. Hillary Clinton had spent her entire life running for president. She'd worked on every presidential campaign since she was 18. She and Bill Clinton built the modern Democratic Party. The building in Washington, D.C. literally has their name on it. So how, how did she lose in a primary the primary of her party to a man who'd been in public life less than a decade. Unless you think this is just a Democratic Party story, the Republican Party the last two Senate cycles has had 12 Senate races where the establishment Republican candidate has lost to a Tea Party insurgent, including three sitting U.S. Senators losing in their own primaries, almost unprecedented in American history because insurgents, individuals, people outside the established systems of power can use technology, can use smartphones, can use the internet to build alternatives and challenge the establishment. What does this mean for you? Because my time is running out. 10 minutes is rough for somebody like me. What does this mean for you? I'm gonna, uh, the first thing I think this means is that there are lessons about how you combine top-down leadership with distributed power. In every political campaign I ever worked on, there was a fairly strict org chart. And you draw a red line at the bottom of the org chart, and everything under that red line was a job you gave to a volunteer. You couldn't trust the volunteers to do the important jobs. But the Obama campaign in 2007 moved that red line way up the org chart, pushed real power and responsibility, real jobs to volunteers, and they maintained integrity. That worked because of a combination of culture and technology, computational management, we call it. That's the good news. The bad news, in a way this didn't work, a place this didn't happen, was this past April. I was teaching, and I had a student who was uh, running in the Boston Marathon. And he had asked permission to, class, to miss class, and I gave it to him. And at the end of my last class for the day, about 1 o'clock, I pulled up on the screen behind me in the classroom, 
the Boston Marathon website, and I put in his jersey number to see where he was, where he was at. He was making really good time, and it looked like he was going to finish about 3 p.m. I finish teaching, I gather up my stuff, get my sandwich, go to my office. I'm sitting in my office reading, grading papers, fooling around on Twitter, and I start to notice on Twitter that something has happened at the finish line. And I see this picture, and I can't tell. At first, I, I don't want to believe it. I don't want to believe it. And then it becomes clear that it's real. And I look at my watch, and it's 3 o'clock. And I think, oh, Billy. Billy and his wife and his two little girls at the finish line. And the first thing I did, inexplicably, is I went to Facebook. And there's Billy at 3.14 p.m. Okay. And I'm relieved. And in that moment, social media and the internet was a beautiful, beautiful thing. It was a way to be intimate with friends and family, to say, I love you, I'm safe, we're okay. But in the days that followed, the internet went on a witch hunt. All these people with all this power in their pockets, they want to do something. They want to take advantage of it. They want to help. You may remember the Google Doc. They open up their guest bedrooms and their homes to the people who are stranded. They raise money online, but they also want to find the guys who did this. And so Reddit, 4chan, other online communities launched something of a witch hunt. Identify the wrong suspects. Create real traumas for families in doing so. And our institutions just weren't prepared to take advantage of everybody's desire, everybody's power in, on their mobile phones and in the internet, their power, their desire to be a part of this, to do something, to help the investigation. We didn't give them anything to do. The institutions were not prepared for that distributed power. But at the same time, there are seven internet companies that effectively control our online life. Almost all of our private, almost all of our public space, digital public space is privately owned. You recognize them, Amazon, Apple, eBay, Google, Facebook, Skype, Twitter. And we have to hold these institutions, these new bigs, accountable for their power. That week during the Boston bombing when there was all kinds of rumors and people are saying the T's shut down, the T's not shut down, the T's delayed, there's a bomb in Harvard Square, all these rumors flying on Twitter. The Boston Police Department's on Twitter saying, nope, that's not true, no, that's a rumor. Twitter, I believe, had a responsibility, an obligation to say, if you're looking for authoritative news on what's happening with the Boston bombing, follow the Boston Police Twitter feed, the Boston mayor, the Boston FBI's Twitter feed. Instead, it was chaos, riveting chaos. There's all this change, all this kind of the fragileness of our institutions in this age of distributed power is not to be underestimated. I think of Thomas Hardy, the great Victorian novelist. In 1899, he's, in his, he's just, in, just turned 60, and he's watched in his lifetime the appearance of the steam engine of the telegraph, of the machine gun, and he's really anxious about what's coming, and he writes a poem called The Darkling Thrush, and it's, it, 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 he's looking out over the landscape, and it's, it's terrifying him what he's seeing in the future, and here's how it ends. It ends, at once a voice arose among the bleak twigs overhead in a full-hearted even song, 
of joy illimited, a darkling thrush, frail, gaunt, small, had chosen thus to fling his soul upon the growing gloom. So little cause for caroling of such ecstatic sound was written on terrestrial things afar and nigh around that I could think there whispered through his handsome goodnight air some blessed hope whereof he knew, and I was unaware. On looking at all of you tonight, the world faces enormous challenges. Things are amiss. The power is distributing out in all kinds of unanticipated ways. And you are my hope. Thank you. <laughs>